Hello, and welcome to How to Parent Your Highly Sensitive Child Like a Ninja. I'm your host, Megan Thompson, licensed clinical professional counselor and registered play therapist supervisor. We at MTC teach parents how to eliminate the daily meltdown and shutdown cycle for your sensitive children and teens. Highly sensitive children make up 15 to 20% of the population, according to research that has been gathered for over a century. And this podcast answers one question. How can you raise emotionally intelligent children? Stop walking on eggshells and help your child express their needs safely without punishments, yelling, or coddling. If you want to know the answer, you're in the right place. Hi, everybody. Megan Thompson here with Megan Thompson Coaching. And I wanted to dive into a request that one of you had made a few weeks ago regarding my personal experiences with uh, family mental health and especially some of you have heard that my sister is highly sensitive depending on how long you've been following me and it's been a couple of years since I've made a video about this so I figured it would be time to update it especially given the fact that uh, my family has experienced new developments over the last six months related to our history and having a highly sensitive sister as well as family members with mental health issues. What I want to speak about today in particular is why we do what we do and why we speak with such passion. I say we because I have a team of no longer one. <laughs> I have several professionals on my team who help me in, in this capacity. And then of course I have the, the private practice with several clinicians on, on the team there. So I say we, but most of you know just me on the Facebook group. What I want to do, I didn't prepare script or talking points so much so for this conversation because I wanted it to be, I don't know, it's hard to pre prepare having a conversation about myself. But what I think is important to focus our conversation today in our mission here at MTC is understanding the difference between a highly sensitive child who is a highly sensitive child and a highly sensitive child who is on their way to developing significant mental health issues and significant mental health disorder or il mental illness. Our mission at MTC is to eliminate suicidal thoughts, behaviors, and self-destructive actions or aggressive actions for highly sensitive children and basically eliminate those actions as well as the thoughts for the highly sensitive population. And so that's a tall order and it's also true that we're up for it. And this is a circumstance and a mission that's really near and dear to my heart for many reasons. But when I think about why this is so important in the world, we have to look at the statistics and why this is crucial for the highly sensitive population. And we're not going to dive into that particularly today because I've got lots of videos about that. <laughs> today, the conversation is going to be more personal. So sharing more about my history and being raised alongside a highly sensitive sister. I uh, was raised in a family of five. So there's myself, my sister, who's the middle child, and then my brother, who's the youngest. And my sister and I are two years apart. And so she is highly sensitive, but nobody knew it because the term was coined in the 90s and she was born in the 80s. <laughs> so obviously in the 80s that term was non-existent and the, the concept of sensitive people was only being studied in in the world of mental health. 
So what what we perceived my sister to be was dramatic. And I say we because I was raised as the oldest child in a household where that is just what we perceived her to be. And so my parents did the best they could with my sister's big emotions. But a lot of the time, it was just by nature of what we know about parenting and what was taught about parenting in the 80s and 90s is that if your kid wasn't listening to you, then they weren't doing what they needed to do and and they needed to be told to listen and they needed to be told to respect their parents in a way that was often taught through punishment. And so that obviously perpetuated the shame that my sister experienced about the mistakes that she experienced in life because highly sensitive people are more prone to shame as an emotion and as an emotional experience and an assessment in their life. And to get out of the heady space, we'll talk more emotionally growing up with a sensitive sister. What I observed is that my sister, Shannon, just really significantly struggled finding her way in life. And what that meant is that she ran with a popular crowd. She was well accepted by her peers, but on the outskirts of that. And so what that meant is that I witnessed her get taken advantage of by her friends that I could see right through. Now my personality, I wasn't necessarily, I had friends in high school, but I wasn't necessarily one to hold back with my tongue and tried to to warn her of the friendships that she was making, but she was more focused on, on acceptance. That's a really important goal of the adolescent brain is to be accepted by one's peers. And so what that led to for my sister is that, that she developed friendships that weren't appropriate and people didn't care about her. They just Um, cared what she could offer to them Um, whether that be she was very friendly she could give rides stuff like that so anyways what we observed growing up with her big emotions is that she was told that she was a bad kid made to write lines as was I but not as often and what that meant is for my sister was that she developed the sense of not being good enough and that there was never going to be anything good enough for her And that was pervasive, so much so that she ended up developing an eating disorder in her early 20s. And what was the hardest part about that is that was really just one piece of the puzzle that my parents didn't see happening. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. They couldn't see it happening in front of their eyes. We tried to help her learn in college and my parents did everything they could. She would go home on weekends to get her homework done with my parents' help. They did everything that they could to help her manage her emotions, but a lot of the time, the message was sent that she couldn't handle it on her own. And when she was expected to handle it on her own after graduating college and expected to be financially independent as well as emotionally independent, she couldn't do it. And so that's when the anorexia developed for her. She significantly overexercised and didn't eat much. She was very restrictive in her diet and very rigid in her diet. And she developed depression, which was what led to to the anorexia, overexercising and then basically not being able to see that she could create what she wanted in life. She had a job, but it wasn't what she wanted. And so she took that to mean that she wasn't ever going to reach what what she wanted to reach professionally so she floundered and spiraled pretty quickly right out of college with my parents very significant educational support 
met on a roll in college, but that was because she needed their support to, to do the work and to get it done and to comprehend the work. And part of that was also because of uh, emotionally it was difficult for her to navigate college and to organize herself. And so when we think about the skills that a highly sensitive child needs to develop over time, my sister didn't develop those skills. She didn't develop the ability to notice her emotions and choose actively not to avoid them. And so what that meant is that she relied on my parents to help her feel better about what was going on and to help her problem solve. So then when she wasn't able to rely on them any more, she didn't need to do schoolwork once having a job, but she still needed to navigate a boss expecting things of her and being able to manage job responsibilities and all that. She wasn't able to meet that expectation and so she received feedback from her employer that didn't create a positive emotional experience for her. So she fell into a deep depression and developed anorexia. But because she was living so close to my parents and they would see her so frequently, they didn't see her weight go down. I came home from grad school and I noticed that she was skin and bones, told my parents and to her she needed treatment immediately. And so when, when we look at the pendulum you run from protecting your kid from their emotions to pressuring them to get it over with, that is the pattern that my parents swung in our household. I have a very close relationship with my parents. They are very aware of what I do and are very supportive of the fact that I help parents escape the pit within which they are in and within which they just didn't know how to get out of. And they're very proud of that, and we're open and, and honest about that. They know if they had an opportunity and the education and, and the information available to them, they would have done things completely differently in terms of parenting my sister. And also, I can imagine my brother and I dealt with figuring out whether or not we were good enough as well, because punishment in any way, shape, or form the typical 80s traditional parenting, writing lines, the occasional spanking doesn't work. And so it creates for any child a sense of feeling like you're not enough and you'll never be good enough. And for my brother and I, that led to type A driven anxiety of you must perform and you must reach these expectations that we placed on ourselves. My parents were encouraging of educational success and professional success but it created an identity for both of us that, and I'll speak mostly for myself, that if we weren't performing well, then we weren't enough. And the same dynamic of not being lovable without having achieved that my sister was experiencing, but for my sister being highly sensitive, it was deeper, it was more rooted, and she wasn't able to see objectively the other ways that she was doing things well in a way that prevented the development of, of significant depression and the anorexia. What that led to was that she received treatment and overcame the behaviors of the eating disorder, but never overcame the cause. So uh, the mental health treatment that she received, typical traditional talk therapy over the years, was not enough to help her learn how to experience her emotions without avoiding them. So what that meant was she never got to the root cause of the issue. And so she continued to escape her emotions through people pleasing, through disorganized procrastination, and through lots of stops and starts in her career. 
It's debatable whether or not she also fits the criteria for ADHD because with support and with focus, she was able to achieve academically. It's a significant gap in the research as well as in traditional treatment modalities for kids with ADHD who are also highly sensitive and the overlap there, which is also why I help parents address that gap and tease that out. It's important to understand that she likely also has some executive functioning concerns that it contribute to the disorganization. With that said, with the structures and scaffolding, I like to call it, in place, in her environment, she still emotionally was inhibited from staying organized because she would escape the frustration, fear of failure and not good enoughness that she was worried about. And so she would not just procrastinate, but also avoid any opportunity to advocate for her needs, as well as any opportunity that would require her to speak to an employer about how she wanted things to go differently in her jobs that she's had. And so what that led to was not holding down a career, nor in reaching her own passion, which is to own her own business and work in her field as being self-employed. And so what that meant is that my parents have invested tens of thousands of dollars financially supporting her, and, and they only just recently kicked her out. And recently, meaning like this year, she's a couple years younger than me. And so over a decade of extra support to help her become independent. And that's really hard for a parent to decide to do and really hard for a parent to decide when it's appropriate. So I'm gonna speak to my experience about what that was like and what that is like being a sibling of a highly sensitive child, now adult, who is not emotionally independent and therefore not physically or financially independent. It sucks. (laughs) Fucking sucks, man. Like, it's really hard to watch your sister flounder in reaching her goals and drown. I'm not one to sugarcoat things. That's never been my personality. (laughs) So some of you may read my posts and think, oh, that's a lot, but it's also true. It's true. She's drowning, especially now trying to stay focused on what she wants and reaching it at this age is really difficult for her. It's significantly damaged our relationship. I don't often speak with her because it's difficult for her to manage her own emotional state enough to have a thorough conversation that is not focused on how awful her life is and ask any questions about my life or demonstrate any interest about that. So, you know, as a sibling, not just a therapist with a sibling, but a person, a human being with a sister, I don't wanna talk about my sister every time I call her. And so that got old and it was very hard to set proper boundaries because she is my sister, to decide not to talk to my own sister because it didn't end up anywhere and I kept being pulled into a position of of wanting to rescue her. And because I can't do that, I've tried to do that many times in various different ways. I've acted as her pseudo therapist. I've acted as her pseudo life coach. I've acted as her pseudo business coach. I've acted as her pseudo parent child liaison, 
even as an adult. And uh, none of that worked. The main reason why we stay in touch is because of my daughter and uh, she values her relationship with her aunt. And, and she's great with kids and that's important to me, but it's within reason and, and sparingly is what I can tolerate. What sucks most about that is that's not even like the hardest part about witnessing my sister's life, like witnessing her growing up. The hardest part is that off and on for over a decade, she has thought about wanting to die and has thought that her life is not worth living. And knowing how blessed I am and how blessed we are as humans, especially those of us in the United States, to live in, in, in this world with all of the opportunities available to think that life isn't worth living is heartbreaking and to think that you have to observe your family member think that and at times truly believe it even though she didn't want to is heartbreaking and because this is my profession it's easy for me to say it matter-of-factly but when you sit down and think my sister doesn't want to live that's really hard to say and sit with. So right now I'm talking to you about it like I report the news, which is like how you guys talk to us on the phone when we first get started. Because it's a lot. It's a lot when you tell about your family and how your family's doing with these big emotions. So you have to emotionally disconnect from the reality of what's going on in order to feel capable of managing your day to day. But if you don't look at it and sit with it and accept it and forgive it, then you can't move on and you basically feel like an ostrich uh, sticking your head in the sand. I've had to do a lot of work on that personally. It's affected every relationship in my life and it doesn't make it go away. But it, at this point now, I know that my mission in life and the companies that I run are so important. And so that's what drives me to run two companies <laughs> rather than just one or to run one at all. And, and so when when I think about that, I've trained myself now at this point to remember my motivation and my mission. And so I avoid going there. I just don't need to go there anymore with uh, feeling sorrow for my sister's life and how it's turned out so far. But I do know for certain that my parents do not have that skill. They don't have that skill. And so they have waffled between resentment, apathy, and guilt, and fear, and worry, and heart disease. And that's really hard to watch. I don't think I've done all the work on dealing with that level of sorrow. I can tell you that right now. But I've done as much as I can so far. The reason why I think it's appropriate to have this conversation is because somebody asked me for it. And it's also true that there's been some pretty significant turns in my family's dynamic, my extended family's dynamic, over the last six months. One of those has included a second suicide. That's something that we talk about here because it's reality for many of you, and it's, it's a real potential for the rest of you if you're here dealing with a kid who's got significant daily intense behaviors, whether that be meltdowns, aggression, thoughts of not wanting to live. 
And so I don't shy away from it and I don't sugarcoat it and I don't tell you that everything's gonna be okay because that doesn't help you. And it certainly didn't help my parents and it certainly didn't help any of the clients that I didn't have those conversations with early on in my career by nature of either not requiring them to participate in sessions or not having the systems in place per my employer to think that was even a standard I could uphold for my clients. And so I watched that significantly impact the work that I was doing and the, the children that I was serving, and children including teenagers. I don't do that anymore. I've seen many parents say, I have a question and please be gentle. And while I can deliver the the facts of the situation with a calm and compassionate voice, I'm not going to treat any of you as fragile people. That's really important that we cover that because I don't believe anybody's fragile in this world. I do believe that you can develop a perception that you're fragile. And I do believe that you can be told or experience significant invalidation that then leads you to not think that you can stop being and feeling fragile. I don't perpetuate that for you as a parent because your kids need you to not be fragile. To add more to this, my cousin Joe took his own life in March and we just recently had his celebration of life. He was 34 and we were two months apart. So what is important to notice about that is that it's very likely that he was a high sensation seeker and uh, highly sensitive kids can also be high sensation seekers. He was very impulsive growing up and as an adult as well. His autopsy report and the investigation recently came back that his decision to end his own life was impulsive. It was not thought out. And that's a significant concern that we see with highly sensitive kids and, and for teenagers who take action towards their suicidal thoughts, they are more likely to be impulsive acts. For my family, my cousin Joe is the second family member who has taken his own life. His mother did the same thing, my mom's sister, seven years ago at this point. Her history was more, her anxiety and depression was more pervasive, it lasted longer than my cousin Joe's, and her decision was much more thought out and planned. It's also true that when you experience suicide not once but twice in your family you don't shy away from telling people that it's a real possibility it's devastating the hardest part about that for me these last couple of months was figuring out how to take what happened and perpetuate the mission at mtc in a way that felt could honor joseph's life and honor my experiences and quite frankly not give a hoot about what you guys think about it <laughs> And that took a little bit for me to figure out, but it's too poignant to brush aside or not talk about or pretend is not happening and to put anybody's opinion about me and why I share my personal stories here as a professional with licenses and decade plus of experience because that's atypical in my field. Put that before saving your children's lives. Who the hell am I to do that? We've had a lot of conversations about death in my house, which with coronavirus has not helped the matter of supporting my now four-year-old in managing the fact that a lot of people are well. And it's also true that a lot of people are worried about getting sick 
and understanding the difference between somebody who dies because they don't know how or when to ask for help, uh, which is what we've told her about my cousin Joe because she saw me crying and saw my husband comforting me and needed to understand that and having that be at the same time age appropriate. The hardest part was watching my uncle do this all over again and my cousins do this all over again and watching their children watch their moms struggle with it. The reason why I speak the way I speak is because you don't know when your life is going to be different. You don't. The only guarantee you have in life is today, now, this moment. That's it. It's the only thing you can guarantee. Some people ask occasionally why I speak like this. Why? And it's funny because oftentimes when I write, it's spontaneous. I don't often schedule writing things down. So you see me posting at like 10 o'clock at night because it just came into my head. And so it's from the heart. And I don't care about what's kosher for you to hear or like what other therapists are writing or what blog posts are supposed to sound like or how things are supposed to be when we talk about parenting and, and why people are supposed to keep things light and airy fairy because you guys are dealing with some really serious stuff and a lot of you have siblings who have been in my sister's position a lot of you are in my position growing up with sensitive siblings or siblings with who struggle with addiction or eating disorders or family challenges in any sort of way and you need to understand how to get out of it because that's why you're here you want to not have that happen for your kid and so we speak about it for real because you can rapidly change your kid's life when you change the way that you parent. And that's also a misconception that I bust a lot of myths about. When we think about what we do here at MTC, the focus is to take over the world by stopping suicide for sensitive kids. So when you're a leader, you, you have to be bold. And that is the mission here at MTC. Stop the perpetual fluffing that everything's going to be fine and that everything's going to be okay and that you have plenty of time to solve this problem that you're dealing with at this point, which many of you know what you're dealing with at this point. It's a massive problem. The ripple effect watching this happen in your child's life and, and seeing it perpetuate impacts the entire family and it sets your child on a tra trajectory that you can't turn around. My parents literally have no control over what my sister does and that is devastating to them because she has been the center of their world for 33 years. Since she was born, they tried to parent us equally, but she required more attention. And so for the last 11 years, she has been the center of their world. They've worked, they've gone home, they have awesome social lives, they're really fun. But emotionally, their biggest focus has been, how do we help her? figure it out. If that's the question you're asking now of your kid, I invite you to think about how you're taking action on that now. And not just think about it, but take action. Because if you decide to fix something, but you don't take action, then you will perpetuate the procrastination that you're in. And I'm calling it like I see it, because that's what it is. We have more time. I'll figure it out later. You don't know how much time you have, and you don't know if you'll figure it out later, and you don't know if you'll be able to figure it out before resentment sets in. I remember a case early on in my career before I knew how much parents were struggling 
And I was pretty judgy of parents at that point in my career, where a dad, after a, a teenager was hospitalized, spent two weeks in the hospital, and the hospital bill came to him, and it was $40,000, and he said, here. And he gave it to her because he was done, was over it. The emotional weight that that speaks to about how stuck he felt and how lost he felt in ever helping his kid is heavier than heavy. There's no words. And so for her, she was trying to focus on the cost of college and how she was going to afford that and help him afford that. And, and so for that, like the fears that were perpetuated for the whole family on whether they would ever get out of it was just solidified go. by that. You know why we're here. If you need help getting out of this, that's why we speak to parents because there is something that works and that's exactly what we do. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for joining me for this episode of How to Parent Your Highly Sensitive Child Like a Ninja. We release a brand new episode every week, so be sure to click subscribe. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in hearing more about how to eliminate the meltdown cycle, I invite you to check out our free masterclass where we cover the five steps our clients use to eliminate the daily meltdowns. You can register for the next training at meganthompsoncoaching.com backslash five steps. That's the number five, S-T-E-P-S meganthompsoncoaching.com backslash five steps. Have a great day.